Welcome to Tisky Sour. We haven't been away long. That's because we did an impromptu show last night about the, I mean, I thought they were quite entertaining, really, events in Downing Street, the U-turn over Owen Patterson's suspension, I suppose. I was joined yesterday by Ash Sarkar. I am absolutely privileged to be joined again by Ash. How are you doing? I'm good, although it's a shame I had to hogtie Aaron and keep him under the stairs so I could nick his tisky spot. <laughs> Maybe let, let him out in a couple of weeks, in a couple of weeks' time. We should let you know, actually, the reason Aaron isn't here is because he is in Glasgow. We have a team up in Glasgow covering COP26, so expect some really exciting video content next week from there. Tonight, we're going to be talking about more about the Owen Patterson case and especially what we've learned over the past 24 hours so we don't go over old ground. I'm going to talk about a more general theme that controversy raises, which is the, the outside or the second and third jobs MPs have. We also have quite a, I mean, a, quite a shocking story, actually, um, about the decline of journalistic standards at the BBC when it comes to reporting on trans issues. Um, do stay tuned for that because it really is quite, I, I was actually shocked that the BBC published what they published. Two days after the disgraceful vote to protect a crooked MP and a day after the dramatic U-turn that reversed that result, Westminster is still reeling. Journalists and MPs have been speculating how Boris Johnson and the Tories got themselves into this mess. There are a few narratives emerging. This is how Politico's Alex Wickham summarised the week's events. He writes the controversy began when... Soon after the standards report landed, Patterson and his circle began a sustained campaign via various Tory WhatsApp groups. Patterson and his pals spent days literally flooding the groups multiple times a day, sometimes with links to articles and comment pieces making the case for his defence. By Monday morning, word was quickly going round that an official plot was being concocted to get Patterson off. Playbook is told by multiple sources that it was devised following meetings between Patterson and his friends in the Brexiteers Spartan group of MPs with Mark Spencer, that's the chief whip, Jacob Rees-Mogg and advisers in the Downing Street political team. He goes on. A senior member of the government tells Playbook that Spencer and Rees-Mogg were the ministers driving the proposal, which was presented to the PM, who then gave it his blessing. On Tuesday night, Johnson attended a telegraph dinner at the Garrick with the journalist Charles Moore, a friend and vocal supporter of Patterson. And a Tory MP told Politico, the whips were quite explicit in making it known to colleagues that the prime minister himself personally will be in the voting lobby and that should be indication enough. So in, in summary, a protest by Patterson and his friends was followed by a plan concocted by Rees-Mogg and the chief whip, which was then rubber-stamped by Johnson after dinner with Telegraph journalists. As to what led to the U-turn, Wickham writes that it was when the rebellion was larger than Johnson had imagined, that he knew the plan to save Owen Patterson was in trouble, and it was when Labour and other opposition parties confirmed they would boycott any new committee on standards that the Prime Minister decided upon a U-turn. So that's the official story as it's being briefed. And it's clear lots of Tory MPs, and I presume number 10 as well, are keen for the Tory chief whip to take the flap for the whole embarrassing affair. The chief whip for anyone not aware, that's the MP tasked with corralling MPs to vote with the party leader. He supposedly came up with the plan. 
He also supposedly misread the mood of, of MPs. He thought more people would go along with his plan than actually did. However, has, as many have pointed out, to blame the chief whip for this affair would be completely ridiculous. The chief whip's job is to enforce the decisions made by the prime minister. We can assume the rot goes to the top. Ash, given the, the reporting that we've seen this morning since that U-turn, do you smell a plot to shift the blame from Boris Johnson for, for his disastrous week? There's an element of truth here, which is that Owen Patterson was particularly well-liked and influential amongst people who have a lot of sway over the prime minister individually. Owen Patterson used to be Carrie Johnson's boss. He's also quite close with Charles Moore, who was Boris Johnson's old line manager at the Telegraph. And of course, there was this matter of the dinner where I imagine uh, it's plausible that Charles Moore put the thumbscrews on Boris Johnson and said, look, protect this guy, Owen Patterson. But none of this could have happened without the explicit say-so of the top people at number 10 and a sign-off from the prime minister. And for that to happen, I think it is a, co a confluence of, of factors. One is, of course, people putting the squeeze on Boris Johnson, perhaps even Carrie Johnson herself, but also that there is an alignment of interests, that if you protect Owen Patterson, get rid of the suspension and scrap the standards committee and force Catherine Stone out of her position, it means that Boris Johnson has launched a preemptive attack which would blunt the impact of this investigation onto uh, into his own financial practices, this matter that we discussed last night about who paid for the Downing Street flat refurbishment, this matter of the blind trust and whether or not any election spending rules were broken. So I don't think it's any one thing. I think that it was two big gravitational forces at play. One was Owen Patterson's influence amongst Tory grandees, the second being Boris Johnson's own political interests. And this attempt to pin the blame on Mark Spencer, I think, really doesn't hold any water. Sure, maybe he might have been somebody who came up with certain key elements of the plan, tabling of the amendment. Maybe he did misread the mood. But anybody who had eyes in their head and even an ounce of political awareness could have told you that Labour MPs weren't going to back this new committee. It's something which you don't have to be a Westminster insider or indeed a chief whip to know that. Whips can only whip where they're told. He couldn't have gone rogue on this. This couldn't have been a rogue amendment with Mark Spencer doing his own thing. This is on the government and on the top people at number 10 in particular. I think that point you make about confluence of interests is, is really important because I think what's being briefed from Downing Street is Boris Johnson was busy. He was away at COP and the G20 and then Mark Spencer, who we're going to push out anyway, because we need someone to blame for this mess, came up with this madcap plan. Boris Johnson was thinking about climate change. So he said, oh, yeah, go for it. Go for it. I quite like the guy anyway. You won't be surprised. Our connections um, to insiders in the Tory party are not particularly strong. I don't get many texts saying what happened in, in meetings between Boris Johnson and his aides. But I find it a little bit more plausible that someone had suggested to Boris Johnson, look, you can save Owen Patterson. And as Ash said, and as we discussed on yesterday's show, at the same time, it will probably work in your self-interest because I assume the people who surround Boris Johnson knows that's what ultimately motivates the guy. It will be in your self-interest because you've got an excuse to get rid of the standards commissioner who is after your back as well. I say after your back because you know it seems like she does her job reasonably properly. Uh, there's no evidence she's got a personal vendetta as much as 
Tory MPs might want you to think that. I want to go to a couple more revelations. And this is what I definitely found most shocking. Um, This is from the Financial Times. They report that when Johnson led almost 250 Tory MPs into the House of Commons division lobbies on Wednesday, he will have noted the sullen looks, but one Tory MP said it was worse than that. There were MPs in tears going through the lobby, potentially in tears because of the amount of pressure that was being put on them. On that front, more than 100 Tory MPs failed to vote with the Prime Minister, even though, according to one backbenchers, some were told they would lose funding for their constituency if they failed to toe the line. Now, that is really, that's really incredible. MPs were threatened, not just with their own job prospects, you know, you won't get this or that promotion, but, but with the future of their constituents. If you don't vote with the government, if you don't vote to allow corruption to go unpunished, it will be your constituents who are punished by us withdrawing investment. They're being told, if you act with integrity, it's your constituents who will suffer. Of course, that information is just from one source, but a Downing Street spokesperson today gave us no reason at all to doubt it. Alex Brown works for The Scotsman. He tweeted today, Downing Street refused to deny MPs were told they'd lose funding for constituencies if they didn't vote with government on Owen Paterson. Spokesman suggests that's for the Whip's office to answer, who would, of course, been acting for number 10. So you can see there in, in that tweet why it's not particularly plausible for them saying this is a question for the chief whip to answer because the chief whip only acts according to what Boris Johnson has told them they can. And obviously it's not within the power of the chief whip to threaten that funding would be withdrawn from anyone. That's only in the power of, of the prime minister or the communities department or whoever, or the chancellor, I suppose. It's, it's not something that would be within the power of the chief whip. So if he said that to an MP, they I don't see why they would believe that if it's just coming from him without it being given the rubber stamp. Um, Another sordid allegation levelled at Boris Johnson is that after Owen Paterson resigned, Boris Johnson offered him a peerage. So someone who'd been forced to resign because of corruption was going to get a seat in the House of Lords. Again, this is unconfirmed, but it is something else the PM spokesperson would not deny. Adam Biankov works for Byline Times. So he tweeted after that press briefing, Boris Johnson's spokesman repeatedly refuses to deny on record that the Prime Minister offered Owen Paterson a peerage yesterday or plans to give him one in the future. So they're not denying that. They're not denying that Boris Johnson offered him a peerage, not denying that MPs were threatened with investment being withdrawn from their constituencies if they didn't vote to allow corruption. Finally, um, because we've got one last tweet from that briefing today, which runs along a very similar a similar pattern. You'll see a pattern emerging here. This is Dan Bloom from The Mirror. Number 10 announced Boris Johnson will refuse to declare how much his freebie Spanish holiday at Zach Goldsmith's villa was worth. Ash, being the Prime Minister's spokesperson seems like quite an easy job, doesn't it? I assume it's reasonably well paid because all you have to say is no comment. It's like how, how you'd be advised, you know, when you get sort of like anarchists on a protest and they give you that bit of paper <laughs> that says, if you get arrested, don't say anything. You know, they're just trying to catch you out. Just say no comment until the lawyer arrives. It's kind of like the, the Prime Minister's spokesperson has, been, spokesperson has been handed one of those bust cards and their job is just to say I... no comment, no comment. Obviously, my heart is with Navarra, but if I was offered the job of Prime Minister's spokesperson, I would take it in a heartbeat. All I'd have to do is whenever I get a text from a lobby journalist, go, fuck if I know what is meant <laughs> yeah. to be my job or something. Mm. I think that there's there's a lot in here to unpack. And I think that seeing this is all part of one pattern or one political tendency is really important. 
what Boris Johnson and his closest team are trying to do is move us towards a Berlusconi or Trump-like state of post-accountability, where ultimately you see what you can get away with on a day-to-day basis in terms of polling. You keep eroding norms by pushing your luck and seeing what kind of flagrant or egregious assault on standards you can get away with while still maintaining that bit of polling distance. And when it came to changing the rules purely for Owen Patterson, Boris Johnson couldn't make that fly. However, I think a steadier and perhaps more considered drip drip might actually play in his favor. And I think it is really important for us to look at the way in which there have been other world leaders who followed this pattern before. I think Boris Johnson modeling himself on Berlusconi is, is there's something really in there. The sleaze, the lack of apology, the fact that anybody who isn't the principal, any Tory MP is considered disposable in uh, trying to maintain the power and the status of the guy at the top. There is another thing which I, I would briefly like to mention, which is the way in which you know the House of Lords for a really long time now has been a sort of holding pen for the corrupt. It's a way of rewarding the erosion of democratic norms through the influence of money rather than being a bulwark against it. This is something which isn't unique to the Conservative Party. Cast your mind back guess over a decade ago to the cash for honest scandal michael and that's why we need an elected and a democratically accountable upper house rather than this feudal holdover which is now just a way of making various you know dirty dealers and money pigs feel like they're important because they've got a job where they can wear ermine every day We've got an interesting comment. Daniel Goff with a fiver. Boris should just retire from politics and go do an album with Kanye. They are both attention-seeking knobs, so it should be a good match. Now, I agree about the attention-seeking knobs thing. I would strongly advise Kanye to not let Boris Johnson appear on his new album, because even though he's a knob, he is a musical genius. I don't want Boris Johnson to ruin, ruin the next album. I'm not listening to this one, because it just seems to be like this album where Kanye is gathering together like every famous rapist he can and, you know, putting them in a prayer circle and being like, I'm here for you, brother. And that sucks. But you cannot deny the man makes beats that slap. And I don't want Boris Johnson anywhere near that. He's ruined enough. Next story. So we're looking at a broader element of this controversy now. Perhaps more shocking than the rules that were broken by Owen Patterson were the rules that weren't. Patterson, you'll remember, broke lobbying rules because he arranged governmental meetings for people who paid him. But my initial reaction to this story was why was he getting paid by external private companies in the first place? Like all MPs, Owen Patterson already had a well-paid job. MPs make £82,000 a year. That puts them in the UK's top 5% of earners. Being an MP should also keep anyone fairly busy. Diligent MPs report working upwards of 60 hours a week, contributing to debates, drafting written questions, and representing constituents. So why did anyone think it was acceptable for someone such as Owen Patterson to have two external jobs, which gave him obligations to provide time to these these private corporations instead of his constituents, and which paid him an extra £112,000 per year, dwarfing the already handsome sum he got for his, what's supposed to be at least, his main job. Of course, on this front, Owen Patterson was not alone. 
to get an idea of some other MPs who couldn't bear to live on £80,000 a year. These are some of Patterson's standout peers. Peers, not as in they sit in the House of Lords, but they are on the same level as him. Andrew Mitchell is a former chief whip, now a backbench Tory MP. In 2020, on top of Mitchell's MP salary, he earned an extra £240,000. This included £30,000 for five days' work with the accountancy firm Ernst & Young and £50,000 plus shares and options for eight days at Equinox International Holdings Limited, a private equity and venture capital firm. One wonders if those eight days' work can really justify £50,000 or if the private equity firm sees other benefits to having an MP on their payroll. Next up is Fiona Bruce, another conservative. She earns £180,000 on top of her MP salary. Bruce practices law through her own firm. In 2020, six separate consulting jobs earned her the equivalent of up to £11,487 per hour. We can also show you Richard Fuller. He earned £175,000 in 2020. That was for committing two hours per month to a number of directorships and chairmanships, including a brand protection firm, a software company, and a venture capital firm. This is a man with his fingers in many lucrative pies. Finally, we've got Sajid Javid, someone I'm sure you will recognise before being appointed Health Secretary this year. But after holding the position of Chancellor, Javid bagged a job with JP Morgan, which paid him £150,000 a year. To receive that sum, Javid worked six to eight hours per month, meaning the role paid at least £1,875 per hour. We should note that unlike Owen Patterson, none of the MPs mentioned here have been found to have broken any lobbying rules. But you've got to wonder why these firms would pay MPs so much money for working just a few hours a month. Either these are exceptionally productive people, some of the most productive people in the world, worth £1,800 a month, or they aren't just being employed for their labour power. Ash, why, why does anyone think this is acceptable? Why is this normal that we have MPs who get paid whose side jobs pay them more than their main job. Why is this normal? Because the people who would be trusted to fix this are the ones who benefit financially from this arrangement. I think that an awful lot of MPs don't see a conflict between representing their constituents, um, you know, being entrusted with our democracy and being paid to effectively be the voice of capital or particular corporations while they are in Parliament. And that's something which is really, really wrong. The simplest way to get rid of this would be to impose just a blanket ban on MPs having second jobs while they are, in fact, MPs. You could obviously make certain exemptions. For example, if you are an MP and a local councillor at the same time, or something like that. You know, there are ways to do this where, it, where it's reasonable. But it's perfectly obvious to me that if what you're doing is six to eight hours work a month and you're being paid £150,000, what you're being remunerated for is not the actual work you're doing. It's being an MP with, you know, prospects who can you know, one day uh, get back a cabinet post and that's worth investing in. If you're an organization like JP Morgan or Ernst & Young or a venture capital firm or whoever else, you're paying for influence, even if you're more subtle and less egregious a rule breaker than Owen Patterson, you are still effectively a shill for a corporation while you should be doing your job representing your constituents.
I mean, what justifies it? So some people will say, oh, £80,000 isn't enough. As I've said, that does put you in the top 5% of earners in Britain. So if you don't think that's enough, you should probably, you're the lawmakers. Maybe you could increase people's wages if you don't think £80,000 is enough to, to live on. You could increase everyone else's wages, I mean. Some people think £80,000 isn't enough, though. Tory MP Peter Bottomley wrote an article on Thursday headlined, To Prevent Another Scandal, Pay MPs More. This follows a recent interview in the Evening Standard where the same theme was raised. In that piece, we discovered that Sir Peter, who has been in the Commons since 1975 and is its longest-serving MP, said he is currently not struggling financially, but he believes the situation is desperate for newer colleagues. He added, I don't know how they manage. It's really grim. Remember, as I keep saying, the incomes he is described are in the top 5% of British salaries. If you think that is grim, then can you please change some laws? Because how do you think it is like to live on, you know, 20 grand? Or the median wage was about 27. You know, this is, this doesn't stand up. That was Bottomley's argument for higher pay. Yet even if MPs did get that pay rise, he still doesn't think that should preclude them taking other well-paid jobs. This isn't one of those arguments where people say we should ban second jobs, but that means we'll have to raise their salary. No, he wants both second jobs and get paid more. So this was his argument for why they should be allowed to have second jobs. This was in the Times article there. So he writes, to those who say no outside earnings, I ask whether Michael Foote should have refused his book royalties or put down his pen while he was an MP. Peter, F Peter Furnham was a redundant engineer. He used his payoff to buy machine tools and created a thriving metal forming business. It would have been over the top to disqualify him from the commons unless he sold up. So those are the two examples of MPs having second jobs or second sources of income that Peter Bottomley thinks are most persuasive as to why they shouldn't be banned. Personally, I think Michael Foote could have donated those royalties to charity. And sorry, Peter, it doesn't seem to me that one successful steel firm is good enough reason to risk the corruption of our entire parliamentary system. Ash, are you at all persuaded by Mr. Bottomley? Sir Bottomley, God, Michael, just can't stop tugging that forelock, can you? I mean, look, it's a really cynical pair of examples to use, which is somebody on the left who's written a book and, you know, somebody who is has got proximity to manual labour. That's plainly not what we're seeing with, you know, the 72 landlords who voted against a law which would have made homes fit for human habitation. That's not what we're seeing with Sajid Javid earning hundreds of thousands of pounds from a giant global bank. That's certainly not what we were seeing with Owen Patterson either. But again, if you wanted to, you know, just have a blunt instrument of a law and wipe out second jobs entirely, do it, do it. The loss that I think that you would get from people who maybe have sources of income which aren't so egregiously exploitative or corrosive to our democracy, for instance, uh, Rosina Allen Khan, who is still a practicing doctor, I think is more than made up for by what you gain in MPs who aren't either formally or informally being paid to be lobbyists for a private corporation. There's all these good deeds that MPs could do. We wouldn't want to stop them doing that and going out in society and you know, helping people in a hospital or whatever. Well, if, if, if that's their real motivation, if their real motivation is to contribute to society, maybe any income could go to some members of parliament charitable trust, which goes to some charity that everyone agrees is a good thing. Something, you know, birds, maybe RSPB or something, something that everyone on all sides of the house can agree is fine. It goes to that. 
or the National Lottery, something like that. No, not even the, the NSPCC, Michael. You were like, you know what? I think parliamentarians, they're a bit split on abused children. But I mean, the past, the past decade would show that there are many Tory MPs who are happy to punish kids. So, I mean, that is true. But, that is but true. I, I haven't seen them punish birds. So I would place money on the RSPB being the one that gets the least complaint. I Maybe don't I- know. You say, you say you've not seen them punish birds, but Richard Drax, who was one of the Tory MPs who was being investigated by the Standards Committee and voted to scrap it, he had failed to declare his, I think, 150 acre or something grouse moorland mm. so he basically maintains a spread of land in yorkshire which is used solely for hunting really stupid and defenseless birds so i don't know i don't know actually you are thinking about it the thing that can make like tories most violent of, of anything is animal rights we, we talked on a, on a previous show about chris packham having you know a, a car exploded outside his house obviously i don't know that the people who exploded the car were tories but I bet they were, (laughs) frankly. Let's look at the politics of this because, of course, MPs earning money on the side will only be made a political issue if Labour make it one. Mainstream journalists probably aren't going to kick up a fuss about this. They often also make a fair deal on the side. Keir Starmer here should have a good story to tell. In Labour's 2019 manifesto, the party promised, they pledged, that we will stop MPs from taking second jobs, paid second jobs, with limited exemptions to maintain professional registrations like nursing. Very reasonable policy, saying for these exceptions that you think are important, you want to remain a a member of the Royal College of of Nurses or or the the BMA, um, the British Medical Association, then you can go and work once a month in in a hospital, very reasonable. Um, it would also be uh, a very helpful thing for the Labour Party to be shouting from the rafters right now, because one of the the best things you can do with a political message, with a political demand, is make the other side make a really, really unpopular argument. And if Labour stood up and said, we need to ban second jobs and essentially force Boris Johnson or you know his allies, I'm sure he would, he would try and keep out of this. Well, I suppose you do it at PMQs. He has to answer the question. You have to force them to say £80,000 is not enough for us to live on. If you've got the Prime Minister to say that, you're in a very good position. So Labour should be shouting about this. They're not. So Angela Rayner did did tweet something along these lines this week. Some people read this as a suggestion that the policy was still in place. Um, So on Thursday, she tweeted, you can be a paid lobbyist or you can be an MP. You can't be both. Labour will end this racket and ban MPs from taking money to lobby for private companies. And Labour will ban former ministers from lobbying after they leave office. So you can see that that's along the lines of the manifesto. It is ambiguous, though, because it is already against the rules for MPs to lobby. If it can be proved they've they've used their position as an MP to lobby for people who are paying them, they've broken the rules. That's what happened to Owen Paterson. What's not against the rules is working for these big consultancy companies and not getting caught lobbying, essentially. That the 2019 policy had definitively been dropped was then confirmed by Keir Starmer, who in a comment piece for The Guardian wrote the following, If I were Prime Minister, I would ban anyone who holds ministerial office from selling themselves to companies that want to write legislation in their own interests. This is a very Weasley, this is a very Keir Starmer um, demand, because you'll note that of all the MPs we we showed you 
at the start of this segment, the ones who are making the most money. None of them are ministers. Ministers don't tend to have second jobs. That's because well, they already get an extra income for being ministers and they are genuinely busy. I think there's something MPs can in a way be as busy as they they want to be. So you can get very diligent MPs who are constantly doing casework, who are constantly meeting people in their constituencies, who have lots of political interests, so they take part in debates, write written questions. You'll also get lots of MPs who, you know, just twiddle their thumbs, go into Westminster every now and again to, to vote with the government when there's a free line whip, and the rest of the time, I don't know, play solitaire or whatever. Whatever they do, I don't know. Probably something a bit more scandalous than that, but you can leave that to your imagination. Labour here, though, is, Ash, before I get sort of lost in some images I don't, I don't really want in my head. Um, Sorry, what are the Tory MPs sitting around twiddling? Thumbs. Thumbs. They're twiddling their thumbs while they play solitaire with their mm. difficult... Um, anyway, let's get back to Labour. <laughs> Ash, Labour, they are missing a trick here, aren't they? Yeah, and I think that the reason for that is that Keir Starmer's got it in his head that you can't look too oppositional. Otherwise, it looks opportunistic or hostile or aggressive. And because of that, it means that you've got these huge open goals where you could just put clear red water between you and the Conservatives. And like you said, make them make the unpopular argument. You come out with something strong like 80 grand seems like a lot to live on, more than most people in this country. So we're going to ban second jobs and make the Tories defend it. So I don't know whether Keir Starmer's got one eye on perhaps compromised interests on his own backbenches or whether he simply has no sense of political strategy or antennae. Maybe it's a bit of both, but to me it's frankly unforgivable for a Labour leader to avoid making an argument which will, one, be popular, two, makes democratic sense, and three, will stop big money corporate interests from corroding our legislature. Seems really straightforward to me. It's a simple argument to make. And it's so obviously one of the, we do often, because he does say some interesting things, we do often sort of show tweets or, or sections of Dominic Cummings' blogs. And, and one thing he really gets right is that no one in Westminster is willing to accept, other than say someone like Jeremy Corbyn, but none of the insiders in Westminster are willing to accept that the public really hate MPs. They really hate Westminster. <laughs> they really hate the establishment. And he says, you know, that's why he was so successful in, in 2019. No one cared that they prorogued Parliament. No one cared that they took the whip, aw mm. whip away from Amber Rudd or whoever because they don't identify with these people. They don't sympathise with these people. But Keir Starmer is the opposite of that. He is like, oh, to be a legitimate politician, what you have to do is be very, very nice to other politicians. And that's but again, this is Keir Starmer who is playing to a gallery made up of lobby journalists, not people out there in the country. And I can't tell if this is uh, vapidity or ego or just straightforward idiocy that he turns to people who've consistently gotten every political call wrong since 2016 and goes, your approval means something to me. Right? If you're telling me I'm doing a good job, that means I'm doing a good job. I, I really can't make sense of that. And Boris Johnson, to his credit, and I think this accounts to the speed of the climb down around Owen Patterson and the Standards Committee, is able to keep in touch with what it is his base really wants. And the 
trouble with the Owen Patterson situation is that a significant chunk of the Tory base, particularly 2019 voters, were motivated by a kind of anti-political impulse. They didn't care how Brexit got done. They just wanted it done. There were the people who voted leave because they wanted to give the establishment a bit of a bloody nose. There are people who don't like MPs. And it seemed like Boris Johnson, particularly when he was being advised by Dominic Cummings, shared at least part of his part of their disdain. Whereas Keir Starmer comes along and he just always sounds like he's about to say, oh, well, actually it's more complicated than you think it is. And he's got absolutely no way of reaching out to those people who have, with good reason, developed an awful lot of hostility to Westminster and Westminster's version of business as usual. So it's not it's not boding well for Keir Starmer that Boris Johnson is obviously a complete clown, obviously doesn't have the nation's best interests at heart, but is able to detect those shifts against him when he strays too far from that anti-politics line. And Keir Starmer is neither able to sort of consolidate a genuinely progressive, positive, optimistic vote, and is also unable to tap into this mood of anti-politics. I want to bring up a, a tweet, which isn't from one of you. It's from Ava Evans, who is politics reporter at joe.co.uk. She had a good tweet today about some of the scandalous relationships that are currently tolerated in, in Westminster between lobbying groups, essentially, and MPs. And this doesn't pertain to incomes and jobs and, and, and extra salaries, but gifts. I think it's important we don't miss out gifts. So she tweeted, and she's sharing a, a, a tweet from Scott Benton, MP, who is a conservative. This man is the chair of all-party parliamentary group on betting and gaming, which is apparently supposed to promote fairer and safer gambling. But from June to July this year, he was gifted £7,494 worth of sporting tickets from various gambling companies. Is that normal? Now, I would answer that should not be normal. It is normal, unfortunately. It is normal because it is seen as perfectly acceptable for MPs to accept gifts from people who have vested interests in the kind of legislation and the kind of regulation that gets decided in in Parliament. But but they do seem to think that is completely acceptable. Ash, gifts. Should, should we also ban MPs from getting significant gifts? I mean, I would. They get enough money. It should be so easy to just say, sorry, it would be inappropriate for me to accept that. Ticket. Are you telling me... On 80k, you can't afford your own sports tickets. I mean, this is a similar thing with Boris Johnson and all this grubby business of other people paying for his holidays. You're telling me on the money that you make, you can't pay for your own holidays. Michael, I'm not going to presume too much, but just tell me, do you earn more or less than the Prime Minister? I earn considerably less than the Prime Minister, and I've been on holiday this year, I have to say. D and did and were you the one who paid for your holiday? I was the one who paid for my holiday. Well, there you go. The rest of us are paying for our own shit. Paying for our own shit on money, which is much less than what these MPs earn. And more than that, neither, none of us are, are receiving gifts from people who we should be regulating, who we should be having a relationship of predator to prey. So not only is it grubby, not only is it pathetic, I think it's also something which effectively sells out this country's well-being in favor of what? A, a nice seat at the Champions League final. Is that how much it costs? Because the other thing we haven't mentioned is they don't only get £80,000 a year. They also get expenses, right? Because you can say, oh, it's expensive. You know, you have to travel to and from your constituency to Westminster. But that's paid for. <laughs> that's paid for by the taxpayer. And it should be. I'm not saying Housing they should. Exactly, their well. second home and stuff. I'm not saying they should 
I think the extra cost that you incur specifically for being an MP, I think fine. Yeah, you, it's, it's fine for that to be paid for by, by the state. But they don't have any extra costs because they're MPs. Because if it's an extra cost because of being an MP, it gets paid for by the taxpayer. So there is, there is absolutely no reason why these people cannot live on more money than already more money than 95% of the population. Couple more super chats. Steve with a fiver. Odd that no evening news channels are carrying any story on this issue at all. It has been evaporated as the actual story grows. I said, yeah, I, have to, I haven't watched any of the evening news channels today, but I did listen to PM, which is on Radio Four at Five, and they didn't have this in their news bulletin. And it does seem like you know it's, it's very quick for what was the most you know, scandalous moment in in Parliament this year to just sort of completely disappear. It does seem like it's become way too normalized and tonton phrase do has ash written any book can't find any on amazon or bn if not she should she should i'm gonna throw that to you ash well i'm currently working on a book it will be out with bloomsbury and it's called minority rule it is a materialist analysis of culture war looking at where it comes from what drives and sustains it and what it's actually concealing and I have written books before, but not under my own name. So I don't know if many people amongst our Tiski audience actually know this, but before I was able to make enough money from journalism to quit doing side hustles, my job was ghostwriting autobiographies for rappers. So there are books, they're just not under my own name. Not Kanye. Not Kanye, but I would take Kanye money. I mean, it'd be a really good book. It would be such I'd a great autobiography. <laughs> it would be really interesting. I mean, there was all sorts of stuff which, because the way in which you, you ghostwrite books, you spend an awful lot of time talking to the person who you're working with because essentially what you've got to do is gather together enough of their life story plus get a sense of their voice to then write it out. And it meant that I was hearing all these stories of just like completely like wild shit that went on in the grime scene in the early 2000s, including which rapper kidnapped another one and held them in the boot of their car. And then I presented all this stuff to the publishing house and the legal team were like, yeah, there's no way we can print that. <laughs> so I'm just carrying around this like completely insane knowledge and I've got nowhere to put it. Um, Tad mm. Cantwell with a tenor. I take it neither of you meet Tory MPs when out clubbing. I have never knowingly met a Tory MP when out clubbing. And you probably would notice them, wouldn't you? Ash? Well, I didn't, this again, um, isn't the same as meeting a Tory MP uh, when out clubbing. But when I was ghostwriting one of these autobiographies, I got invited to the Enemy Awards. So I went and I saw Stella Creasy and Matt Hancock just like really doing the like, Ooh, uh, Malia kind of dance and I was like Ugh, who would want to hang, hang out with Matt Hancock I remember thinking that at the time hashtag indie MP um, is, is, is what Stella Creasy always tweets let's go to our final story the BBC has been forced to edit a 4,000 word article deemed transphobic after it emerged one of the key interviewees had described trans women as vile weak and disgusting and had been accused of sexual misconduct the piece in question, published at the end of October, warned that lesbians were being pressured into having sex with trans women. It's an incredibly in incendiary piece. To give you an idea um, of the article, I'm going to show you how it starts. So this is the start of this 4,000 word article. 
I've had someone saying they would rather kill me than Hitler, says 24-year-old Jenny. They said they would strangle me with a belt if they were in a room with me and Hitler. That was so bizarrely violent just because I won't have sex with trans women. Jenny is a lesbian woman. She says she is only sexually attracted to women who are biologically female and have vaginas. She therefore only has sex and relationships with women who are biologically female. Jenny doesn't think this should be controversial, but not everyone agrees. She has been described as transphobic, a genital fetishist, a pervert and a turf, a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Now, of course, those tweets are completely vile um, and I'm sure incredibly not nice to say the least to receive. Does that warrant a, a big article about this, you know, this, this phenomenon of trans women pressuring lesbians to have sex with them? I'm not sure. As I say, whilst this piece is bound to provoke a lot of fear surrounding trans women, its evidence base is really, really weak. To ground its argument, the article cited seven tweets from mostly anonymized accounts. It included a number of anonymized interviews, like the one um, I've just shown you, and it spoke to a number of anti-trans activists. It also included the following bit of quantitative data. The author, Caroline Lowbridge, writes... Hearing about experiences of lesbians being pressured into having sex with trans women led one lesbian activist to begin researching the topic. Angela C. Wilde is co-founder of Get the L Out, whose members believe the rights of lesbians are being ignored by much of the current LGBT movement. She and her fellow activists have demonstrated at pride marches in the UK where they have faced opposition. Pride in London accused the group of bigotry, ignorance and hate. Lesbians are still extremely scared to speak because they think they won't be believed because the trans ideology is so silencing everywhere, she said. Goes on. Angela created a questionnaire for lesbians and distributed it via social media, then published the results. She said that of the 80 women who did respond, 56% reported being pressured or coerced to accept a trans woman as a sexual partner. While acknowledging the sample may not be representative of the wider lesbian community, she believes it was important to capture their points of view and stories. Yes, the national broadcaster is now basing stories which portray minorities in an extremely negative light based on self-selecting Twitter surveys from people who we can assume are probably already hostile to that minority because they're following someone who's part of an anti-trans organisation. Of course, the BBC would say this is acceptable because the piece also used qualitative evidence, namely interviews. Yet here they had another problem because ironically, given the theme of the article, one of their interviewees had herself been accused of sexual misconduct. The original article featured quotes from Lily Cade, a porn star who stars in lesbian movies. She was quoted because she had refused to have sex with a trans woman porn star for which she received criticism on Twitter. After the article was published, it was reported that Cade had, in fact, apologised in 2017 after receiving multiple allegations of sexual abuse. Cade then went on, so this was after the article was published, to make violently transphobic comments on her blog and on her Twitter. These included the following. I should warn you, this is really quite shocking and horrible. So she, on her blog, wrote, If you left it up to me... I'd execute every last one of them personally, cancel the ever-living fuck out of this, cancel this so hard that no man dare walk the path of the trans woman in public ever again, enough is enough, lynch Caitlyn, so that's Caitlyn Jenner, lynch the sisters Wachowski, so that's the, the trans women who directed The Matrix, lynch Laurel Hubbard, she's the trans weightlifter, and lynch Fallon Fox, who is a, a trans MMA fighter. 
Following these quotes coming to light and the abuse allegations, the BBC have edited out Lily Cade from the article, um, from, from their original article, so it's been edited. They posted this update under the articles. This is how, how the story now appears on the BBC website. Update, 4th of November. We have updated this article published last week to remove a contribution from one individual in light of comments she has published on blog posts in recent days, which we have been able to verify. We acknowledge that an admission of inappropriate behaviour by the same contributor should have been included in the original article. That edit, of course, is, is welcome from the BBC. However, it doesn't answer the most important questions that the case of Lily Cade raises. Namely, why in a 4,000-word article making very damaging claims about a minority group were the only sources of evidence some tweets a laughable survey, and interviews with a small number of women, at least one of whom has admitted sexually inappropriate behaviour and is an extreme and violent transphobe. Ash, this article received 20,000 complaints. It's clear why it did. I mean, what did you make of it? So I spoke about this article at the time when it came out on the 26th of October, because just giving it a first read, it was abundantly clear to me that it fell short of every editorial standard in the book. So I'm just going to address it from that perspective before then talking about the conflict it presents between cisgender, lesbians and trans people. So let's just talk about the editorial standards which were breached in this piece. The first is that it is predicated on this poll which, as you point out, is a self-selecting poll. So it was circulated by somebody who is known to have very trans-hostile views amongst their social networks, and it only had a sample of 80 people. Now, a sample of 80 people, if you're doing very detailed and ethnographic and rigorous work, can be useful. But if it's something like a Twitter poll, I mean, a Twitter poll at all shouldn't be used as the basis for any article. But if it's something like a Twitter poll, it is not only unreliable, it may actually be actively misleading because you're drawing from a pool of people who are participating precisely because they already share a particular point of view. Let's take, for example, if I was to put out a Twitter poll today and it said, who would you prefer to be prime minister Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson, the likelihood is that because of the kind of following that I have on Twitter and the kind of networks it would be reaching, that Jeremy Corbyn would win by a milestone. That wouldn't be a reliable poll over and above, say, the 2019 general election result or the kind of polling which is put out by YouGov or, or you know, anybody else. So basing something on a Twitter poll is very, very bad. Basing then an article which involves qualitative research which is being shaped by organizations and individuals whose entire reason for being is hostility towards transgender people, not wanting trans people to be able to transition and be accepted as their chosen gender, people who are vociferously against the idea that transgender women are women and should be treated as such is, is awful, awful journalistic practice. And again, You'd see how how dreadful it is if I gave to you the example, the BBC has decided to do an article about Muslims. And in order to do so, they interviewed Tommy Robinson and all of Tommy Robinson's friends who say that Muslims do indeed present a unique threat to, I don't know, white British people. You would say that's not a reliable article. And not only that, 
that can be considered uh, inflammatory or inciting, uh, you know, hate crimes or violence against this minority group has been so thoroughly demonized because people whose entire reason for being is hostility towards that group have been given, given the platform and the legitimacy of an outlet like the BBC. So purely from a journalistic perspective, I thought that this article was very dangerous and it was shameful for the BBC to have to publish it. Let's then move on onto uh, the content of the article, which is this matter of people saying that they have felt pressured into sex by transgender women. (sighs) So this was something which I also spoke out about at the time. And because of what I said, I'm still receiving emails on like a daily basis from mostly men who present themselves as gender critical, calling me rapey, saying that I'm essentially abetting rape, because all I said was nobody should be pressured into sex for any reason. You have the right not to have sex with anyone for any reason. However, if what you're doing is going around saying, I don't want to have sex with anybody from this group of people because I find them so disgusting, because I don't think they're really women or because I don't think they're really human, that that speech act might be indicative of bigotry. Not whether or not you want to have sex with somebody, but simply that you go around saying the fact that you don't want to fuck them is is itself a comment on their humanity or whether or not they should be able to live as they are. And the parallel that I drew was to do with race. So Michael, I don't feel offended in the slightest that you don't want to have sex with me. However, if you spent the entire day posting on Twitter that not only would you not want to have sex with me, that you wouldn't want to have sex with any Bengali because they're so disgusting. You hate their skin color. They just don't look like they're humans to you. I would say, Maybe that's a bit racist. And I do think that that's a fair comparison to make, which is where whether or not you want to have sex with a particular minority group is deemed as evidence of whether or not they're fully human or indeed fully women. No one is saying that there is a moral obligation to have sex with transgender people if that is not where your desire leads. But an awful lot of people, that is where their desire leads. There are an awful lot of lesbians out there who do and want to have intimate relationships with transgender women. And that's completely fine as well. But the minute you put that argument, which is, look, people's desires are different. It's going to lead you in different directions. You don't have no obligation to have sex with anybody. But the fact that you don't want to have sex with this individual, you don't want to have sex with anyone from this minority group, doesn't make them disgusting. It doesn't make them wrong. It doesn't make them less human. The fact that you get such a wave of abuse from people who describe themselves as gender critical, which really just means, you know, let's face it, trans hostile, transphobic. I think it tells you about the actual purpose of this discussion, which isn't about, is it or is it not okay to pressure someone into sex? Obviously, the answer is never okay to pressure anyone into sex. It is using this presentation of trans women as uniquely sexually predatory in order to row back on the rights that they've secured and to curtail any rights that they might achieve in the future. Let's have a look at the BBC response. As I said, this this article received 20,000 complaints um, and the BBC responded in, well, they, res- they ultimately took out this, this, this one interviewee, as, as we've explained, but they defended the article, they kept it up 
And this is the BBC response. So they said, the article was carefully considered before publication, went through a rigorous editorial review process and fully complies with the BBC's editorial guidelines and standards. Some argue that the article is flawed because it is based on a survey of 80 people. The article itself states there is little research in this area, that the survey featured was conducted on social media and is therefore self-selecting. And even the author of the survey admits it may not be a representative sample system. We, we admitted the limitations of it. Furthermore, there is a link to the detail of the findings which enables the reader to make up their own minds about the replies the sample generated. But the article is more than just a survey. The journalist's work involved months of speaking to many people about the topic, and the article includes testimony from a range of different sources and provides appropriate context. And one detail in there is that the author had spent months researching the piece. Now, you might wonder here why, if she'd spent months researching the piece, she hadn't come across easily Googleable information which would reveal that one of her interviewees had been accused of sexual assault, which is probably relevant information when that is the theme of your article. Potentially, actually, we don't need to wonder because it could be the case that instead, journalists at the BBC did know that context and just didn't care, didn't think to mention it. A Guardian report on the row provides some more shocking details, actually, about this story. So they write, on Wednesday, Chelsea Poe, a trans porn porn performer, said she had told the BBC journalist behind the article that Cade had been accused of sexual misconduct and was no longer working in the porn industry, but said she had not been quoted in the piece. A source at the BBC said the journalist behind the story had spoken to Poe, but an editorial judgment was made not to quote her because the general conversation was deemed not relevant to the piece. So what we're being told here, while this article really only quoted people who were quite you know, hostile to, to trans people who were sort of buying into this narrative. They did interview a trans porn performer, but they didn't feature any of her answers. And what's more, that trans porn performer has said that she told the journalist that one of the other interviewees had been accused of sexual abuse and the journalist didn't think to mention it. And the BBC have, have now admitted that should have been mentioned. So the question to the BBC, if, if you admit that that should have been mentioned, that context should have been given, then... What's your account of how the journalist didn't think to include that? I mean, Ash, it does. And there's so much about this that just makes me think, what the hell is going on at the BBC? But every, every extra detail I read about this just makes it worse. But Michael, we know what's going on at the BBC. I don't want to play libel bingo, so I'm going to direct my comments generally rather than at this particular journalist. There is a media interest in utilizing feminism and discourses which have developed through feminism about sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and wielding them to demonize transgender people. All right. That is a thing which is happening not just at the BBC. It's also happening at The Guardian. It's happening in all of these discussions around self-identification and access to same-sex spaces. And it is a way of using the language of liberation for intensely reactionary purposes. There is a vast overrepresentation of transphobic views at every level of the media. Take an outlet like Women's Hour, which recently featured an interview with Kathleen Stock, who recently resigned her post at Sussex University. Now, I'm not going to get into the rightness or wrongness of Kathleen Stock or her resignation. What I will say is how many times have you seen a transgender woman on Women's Hour talking about the issues that 
she faces? Or how many times have you heard a story on Women's Hour about transgender women struggling to access healthcare or the increased rates of domestic violence or sexual violence that transgender women experience? You've never heard it. And I know for a fact that certain stories have been pitched to Women's Hour about experiences of transgender people, transgender people trying to access healthcare. And quite simply, they were rejected because the line was, I just don't think our audience will be particularly interested in this. So you have deliberate media gatekeeping to exclude trans sympathetic stories from their platforms, while I think offering disproportionate and sympathetic coverage towards people who articulate transgender points of view. This is an editorial perspective which runs writ through British media. And I think it is shameful. I think it is dangerous. I think it is insightful towards a minority who already face heightened rates of violence and abuse and harassment. But it is also atrocious journalistic practice. And it is robbing the audience of the ability to make an informed decision about what they think about this issue. I remember when I, when I first read this, I tweeted, the thing that really tells you the agenda that a media organization has is the stories for which their standard of proof rises or falls. So the BBC will only cover something which paints British foreign policy in, in a negative light. If it's, if it's absolutely foolproof, if, it, if, if, if they know that this is completely watertight, if it's just based on a few testimonies, it's not going to get published. When it comes to a story which paints trans people in a bad light, they just need a Twitter poll and interviews with a few activists who are explicitly anti-trans and then a few anonymous people. You know, it's, it's, the, the burden of proof, if you want to write a story about trans people being terrible, is so, so low that, that the BBC, I mean, it's, it's unavoidable to think that people quite high up in that organization have a bit of an agenda. Let's wrap up there. Ash, I'll see you on Monday. You will see me on Monday. All right. Let's end it there. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.